0: All right. Thanks so much. Well, we've been away for a while, and the summer is going so well. I hope yours is. But before we dive into today's message, which I'm really uh, excited about, I want to give you a quick update on some things that have happened in these weeks that we've been away from the pulpit preaching responsibilities at Grace. First of all, In the first week, uh, my son Chase and I were in Poland. We were hosted by Dr. Gustav Seslar, who was our host all week long. He's the president of the Warsaw Baptist Seminary, a wonderful organization there just outside of the uh, city of Warsaw, Poland. And uh, we were able to meet with him. He gave us a great introduction to his country. My mentor, Louis Drummond, had taught there for a number of uh, years going as a visiting professor uh, back in the 80s and uh, 90s, and it was an honor for me, through a contact with the Billy Graham team, to be able to go and, and do a reconnaissance mission, I called it, and see how we might be able to partner with them. So, we're excited about going back in December and teaching there are seminary students there for a brief time in the area of evangelism, so I'm looking forward to that. It'll just be a brief trip, and yet I think it'll have a high impact. We were able to meet with a lot of key leaders in the country, a member of parliament who's an evangelical Christian, had dinner with him and some others, a high-ranking judge who's a part of a wonderful Bible study and loves the Lord, and a number of pastors in that great country. So we're excited, and I'll keep you updated as uh, December rolls around and be asking for your prayers. During the second week we were away, we had an intensive study week where for 10 to 12 hours a day, literally, uh, I was engaged in study of the book of Revelation. Now, there's no book in the Bible that has caused more uh, confusion and concern and dread than the last book of the sixty-six. It's tragic, really, because that's the last thing it ought to cause for true believers. It should be a tremendous encouragement to us, because that's what the message basically is. Now, later this year, in fact, in September, we're going to kick off a twelve-part series in the Book of Revelation. I've never preached on that book before. Uh, I'm excited about that, and and. I really want you to tell your family and friends and be a part of that study. Uh, It's going to be 12 parts beginning in September. And then finally, for the last two weeks, Debbie and I have had some wonderful vacation time. I hope you've had a chance this summer to relax and maybe get away from your routine. It's always good to kind of change pace, isn't it, a little bit? But I don't know how you feel. It's always good for us to get back into the groove of routine and to be back to kind of life as normal. So we're excited to be back. You know, at Grace Fellowship, our goal is that every true believer would become a Christ-centered follower of Jesus. But why does that not happen so well with many Why is it often two steps forward and and three steps back? Why do we sometimes go through seasons where we may be close to the Lord and just almost soaring in our spiritual experience and then we drift and grow cold or distant from God? Why is that? Often temptation is the key, often temptation. We're tempted and we go down a road of bad choices, which leads us far from God and on a perilous journey. Well, today I want to talk with you about that because we're going to look at a passage which I think of all the places in Scripture we could look is probably the most helpful in how to deal with temptation and how to defeat the devil. We get the privilege today, dear friends, of learning from Jesus Himself. We're going to look at how he tackled temptation, and I think we're going to get some wonderful insight into how we can get victory over the devil and not live such a vacillating spiritual life. It's going to help us, many of us, go from where we are today to being truly Christ-centered believers. We're in a series called A Guide to the Good Life And there's perhaps no more relevant topic than this for every believer, to learn how we can get victory over the spiritual foes that oppose us. So with that sort of as a foundation, let's jump in. Uh, I want to invite you to take some notes if that's helpful to you in learning. First, let's consider the subject of the temptation. And I want to be brief here and simply say it's Jesus himself. You may be tempted to a collective duh at this point. But that's important to say because I've met so many Christians who believe that because they're tempted, there must be something tragically wrong with them or in them. Well, we should never court temptation. We should never seek it out. We ought to be careful some of the things we do, because it may make us vulnerable. But let's be crystal clear up front, it is not a sin to be tempted. Jesus Christ himself is the subject of this temptation. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by... The devil, Jesus, the sinless son of God, was tempted. That encourages me because right away I know I don't have to be sinful to be tempted. And it also tells me I don't have to give in to temptation. Every temptation that you have felt, Jesus has felt. Hebrews 4.15 says... For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Every temptation you've felt, Jesus felt. You may question that. I'll come back to it a bit later in the message. He was the subject of the temptation. But second, and you're going to write a lot of S words today, so get ready for it, gang. Gang. The setting of the temptation. The alliteration is on overload today, I want to warn you. The setting of the temptation. Let's look at Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love with you I'm well pleased. I want to speak to two aspects of the setting, the timing and the place. First of all, the timing. Think about this. Jesus was being baptized. And as he did, something highly unusual happened. In fact, I think you could search all of Scripture and not see a scene exactly like the one that unfolds here in this moment. Here's what you have. Jesus the Son is there. God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove is coming down and resting on him. And then you have God the Father. God the Father speaks those words of incredible affirmation and approval. It doesn't get any better than that. What a highlight! I mean, if you were running a highlight reel of Jesus' earthly life, this would be among the most precious moments. But if you've read this story, do you know what happens immediately after this? After this mountaintop experience, that's when Jesus experienced some of his most intense battle and temptation from the devil. Years ago, I came across a phrase. I don't know who originated it, but I believe that both Scripture and life experience bear it out. You might want to jot this phrase down, the devil after the dove. Now, leaders, I want to warn you, when you are experiencing some of your greatest, most impactful moments, that's when the devil is likely to come against you. When your small group is just going deep, finally, after all your prayers and exertions, when people are finally bonding and gelling and beginning to share, look out, because the devil after the dove principle says that when God opens the windows of heaven to bless us, Satan opens up the windows of hell to blast us. You can search the Scriptures, and you'll see it over and over again. Women and men, after they've received the approval and approbation of God, then the enemy comes and levels his attack. You say, Pastor, you're trying to make us paranoid. Oh, not at all. You should never try to detour around a deep, delightful experience from God just because the devil hates it. All I'm doing is trying to give you fair warning. Whenever you have the approval of God, you're going to have the attack of the enemy. So the timing is very interesting, and I think we find that experience true in our own life. By the way, how many of you, and I'd like to see a show of hands on this, how many of you, after a wonderful church service, have had a huge argument with your wife or husband on the way home? Can I see your hand, please? Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. Many of you are liars, but that's okay. God will forgive you for that. It's true, isn't it? When we've had some of our most precious times, that's when the devil comes to blast us. That's the timing. But now I want you to consider the place. Verse 4 again says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Now, it's interesting to me that Adam and Eve fell in a perfect environment. That's where they first caved into temptation. Jesus conquered temptation in the worst possible environment, a desert place, arid, desiccated, dry, deserted, lonely. Now, here's why that's important. In our culture, we've kind of come to believe when it comes to our life socially, that environment is everything. We look at people who are challenged in one way or another, and we go, Wow, well, if we could just get them in a different environment, they could really make it and be victorious and have a good life. Really? Oh, I'll agree that environment is important We want to try to provide the best environment we can for people. If there are things in their environment, their immediate life and setting that are holding them back and holding them down and hurting them, we obviously want to deal with that. But please understand, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Our challenge goes way beyond environment. Our challenge goes way beyond the externals. There's a spiritual battle that is waged from the inside out, and we need to keep that in mind. So we've seen the subject, we've seen the setting. Here's this third S word. I want you to consider briefly the source of the temptation. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and we will get beyond these verses eventually, I promise you. But it says, there he, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. So, the devil himself is the source of this temptation. Here's why I point that out. In all of my theological training, I went to a couple of pretty liberal schools that weren't real keen on traditional theology and historical theology and biblical theology. They were uh, trying to change some things up. And all of my teaching, I was always taught that the devil is just a metaphor. Just a figure of speech. People see evil out there, and they gotta try to find some way to explain it, something to name it, and so the ancients called it the devil. It's not really a being. There's no reality to it. It's just a way to describe some things that we don't understand. I heard about a prize fighter who was really having a rough fight. I mean, he was getting buffeted and beaten half to death. And round after round, he was barely standing on his feet. He kept looking over to his corner thinking, it's time to quit. Call it off. Throw in the towel. But every time he'd come back to his corner, his manager would say, oh, you're doing great. You're doing great. Finally, he was so bruised and beaten and bloodied, the round was over. He went over and said, look, man, it's time to quit this thing. He's killing me out there. His manager said, oh, he isn't isn't laying a glove on you. You're doing great. The guy said, well, watch that ref then because someone's killing me out there. You'll never get victory over the devil by denying reality. If the devil is not real, what caused those 2,000 pigs in Mark 5 to go over that cliff and commit hogicide? Did a metaphor do that? Did a metaphor cause Judas Iscariot? To betray the one who had been so kind and loving to him for three years? Betray him into the hands of his enemies? Did a metaphor really do that? Scripture says, Satan entered Judas. Make no mistake, the devil is real. Now, there's an interesting verse in 1 John chapter 2 that I think sheds some good light on this. I want us to look at it together for a moment And then I'm going to ask you to jot three things down, three words. Here we go. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. All temptation, and I'll stand by the word all, all temptation falls into one of three categories found right here in this verse. It either has to do with the cravings of sinful humanity, which is our doing, things we do. It has to do with the lust of the eyes, which relates to having, things we possess, or the boasting of what we have and do. In other words, pride. So I want you to write these three words down, passions, possessions, and pride. We are tempted in three areas, friends, regarding what we do, regarding what we have, and regarding our being, who we are, passions, possessions, and pride. You can check it out. Look in the garden in Genesis 3, and you'll see that the initial temptation had all three of those elements in it. If you study it carefully, we'll not take the time right now, but I invite you to do that if you want a little homework. It's really interesting to watch. And now I want you to see how that Jesus' temptation was in all three of those areas as well. And that's why Hebrews 4 can say he was tempted in all things as we are. Look with me at verse 3. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone. Now, I think that's a temptation in the area of passions, having to do with basic desire. Now, is there anything wrong with bread or eating bread? The answer is no, not at all. Jesus ate bread. Jesus created bread miraculously as he fed the multitudes. Jesus even told us to pray for our daily bread. Is there anything wrong with bread? Absolutely not. But the devil said put bread above the will of God. And Jesus expressed purpose... At this point, God the Father's purpose for him, at this point, was to fast and pray. But Satan was trying to divert him from that and saying, look, fulfill this legitimate desire you have, hunger, fill it in an illegitimate way. And that was the essence of the temptation. But then second, I want you to see how he was tempted when it comes to possessions or what John calls the lust of the eyes. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. By the way, Satan is the god of this world, according to the Bible. And I can give it to anyone I want want to. That was not an empty statement. So if you worship me, it will all be yours underline that phrase. It'll all be yours. Even today, we say, feast your eyes on this. That's a temptation in the area of possessions. Now, again, let me ask you, is there anything wrong with having possessions? Absolutely not. Deuteronomy 8, the Bible teaches that God is the very one who gives us the ability to produce wealth. In 1 Timothy 6, God has told us (coughs) that God blesses us with all these various possessions, all these things for our enjoyment. So again, is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. But the devil takes a legitimate need or desire And tries to get us to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. He's not creative at all when you think about it. And then the third area Jesus was tempted is when it comes to this area of pride. Verse 9, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Passions, possessions, and this one is pride. The devil's saying, Look, Jesus. Wouldn't it be neat if one day when everyone's worshiping there in the temple, wouldn't it be cool if you just kind of floated down gently? Boy, you talk about causing a stir. That'd be all over social media. People would know who you are. You wouldn't have to go through this hard road that you've chosen, all this suffering servant junk. You could just scrap all of that. What an appeal this was to Jesus for pride, to do something spectacular that would bring glory and attention to himself in a God-forbidden way. Every sin that you face... Fits into one of these three categories. And Jesus overcame every one of those in the power of the Spirit. Well, we've seen a number of things about this, but now I want us to get to the crux of the matter. One of the most common statements I've made to you through many years is the Bible was not written to fill our heads with information. That's okay as far as it goes but that's not the point. The Bible was written to change our lives. God wants us to be Christ centered people where Jesus is our very life, the priority above all. So let's talk now for a few moments as we go down home stretch about the subduing of temptation. And here's what I want to do. If you're a person who like me says, look, I want to make progress in this journey. I don't want to be spending time going down a wrong road. I don't want to be tripped up by the enemy. I want to go from victory to victory. I want to be a victor, not a victim, right? I want to be an overcomer. I don't want to be overcome. If that's really your heart today, I urge you to listen carefully right now. I'm going to give you six principles. You can just jot them down in your notes. You can ponder them now and later, but six principles that allowed Jesus to have such a smashing victory against the, the devil. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Isn't that a great phrase? triumphal procession. It's a picture of the great processions that happened in the Roman Empire after there was a tremendous victory and a defeat of an enemy. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. If you're interested in being a victor and not a victim, let's get started here. Six principles that will lead to victory. And I'm going to give you one critical key question with each one of the principles. So you may want to jot that down too. First, the principle of sonship. Luke 3, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, heaven was open. The Holy Spirit descended on him. A voice came from heaven. And catch this phrase, you are my son. Let me ask you a question. Are you a daughter or a son of God? What we're talking about today, victory over temptation, is not for people who aren't in a vital, saving relationship with God the Father. Are you a daughter of God? Are you a son of God? Jesus overcame the devil through his relationship with the Father. So let me ask you, here's my question Are you saved? And do you know you're saved? My experience as a pastor for many years is that at least 20% of people don't have a confident assurance when it comes to that question. And if you're not sure, why don't you just cry out to the Lord in your own heart even now and say, Lord, save me. Lord, I give my life to you. I yield myself to you. Or come to someone after the service today at any of our locations and say, I need to talk to someone about being a son or a daughter of God and come into a relationship with him. You simply cannot defeat the devil without being a child of God. The second principle is that of submission. That same passage, when God said, you're my son, he then says, whom I love with you, I am well please. Jesus lived a life of submission to God. The truth is, you can be truly on your way to heaven, saved, forgiven, and yet you can stumble and fall. In fact, you can live your life daily, not being fully submitted to God. There are a lot of Christians who've been saved, but God is not really pleased with their daily walk because they're carnal and indifferent. God is honestly not happy with that. So let me let me be straight with you. Victory is not for rebels. If you're in a season of life right now where honestly you're going, God, I just want to shut you out here. I don't really want to submit to you in this area. I want you to know you're in a very precarious place. Just got to be honest with you. Victory is not for rebels. So here's my second question. Can you honestly say with Jesus, and this is what Jesus said in the Gospels, he said, I always do the things that please him, meaning his father. Are you living a life that's pleasing to God? The third principle if we want victory, we've got to understand the principle of spiritual power. Now, if you didn't hear last week's message, I urge you to go online and check that message out as Pastor Chad talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit, a tremendous practical message. But if you read this story carefully, you'll notice the huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Let me just point out a few places. Verse 32 of chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then four verses later, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus (coughs) read as he went back to his hometown of Nazareth and stood up in the synagogue and began to read the, the scroll because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Now, you need to hear this. If Jesus overcame temptation as God, he is no example to me. Now, don't accuse me of heresy. I believe that Jesus was divine, he was the unique God man. I believe in what the theologians call the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God, fully man, never ceased to be God while well, he was fully man. I believe that, but let me say it again. If Jesus overcame the devil as God, he's no inspiration or power to me, Because example to me, because I'm not, nor are you. This is very important. Jesus overcame the devil as a person filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit that was available to Jesus to guide and empower and strengthen him is available to you and me today. That is good news. So here's my question on this principle. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you daily, moment by moment, submitted to the Father's will? Here's the fourth principle, if you want to be a victor, the principle of scriptural knowledge. How did Jesus get the victory? Well, he's a son, he's submitted, he's spirit-filled, and then he begins to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6.17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every time the devil came to Jesus, if you want to do a little research here, you'll see that Jesus quoted Scripture, Scripture, interestingly enough, out of the book of Deuteronomy. You say, well, how did he get that? Did he have a Bible app with him out there? No, I doubt if he'd have any reception out there, you know. Did he have a scroll in his pocket? No, don't think so. Jesus had internalized, memorized, personalized that scripture probably from the time he was a boy or a young man. And when the devil came to him, he took a rhema word from the Logos word of God and he ripped the devil up with it. Now, let me just say to you, God has given you a book, (laughs) and it is full of truth, and it's full of powerful, personal truths. And when you begin to crack that book open and learn those principles and promises and prerogatives that are yours through the Word of God, Satan begins to tremble. Oh, I wish I could get you to see this. You see, there's something that some of you have started doing that is almost putting the devil on Prozac. I'm telling you right now. You've started doing it. And you don't even realize what a powerful impact it's having. You're, making the, you're giving the devil cold sweats every time you do this. When you take your Bible and you just crack it open, And you begin to say, Lord, would you show me things, treasure from your word? Would you show me your principles and priorities and the prerogatives that are mine as your child? Would you just make those come alive for me? The devil is sweating bullets because he knows that any believer filled with the Spirit and armed with scriptural knowledge, he is no match for that person. Do you want to be a victor? Are you satisfied being a victim? If you want to be a victor, arm yourself with scriptural knowledge. Two weeks from today, we're going to spend a considerable amount of time talking about that. I'm going to get very personal and autobiographical. And as we talk about how to program your mind for spiritual success, I don't want you to miss that message. So I'm going to move on for now fifth, oh, this gets better. I can't believe it. The principle of satisfaction. Do you know why the devil couldn't really get to Jesus? Here's why. Because Jesus didn't have an itch the devil could scratch. In John 14, verse 30, Jesus said, and this sounds a little enigmatic and mysterious, but it's honestly pretty easy to understand. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world, that's the devil, is coming. He has no hold on me. Jesus had no itch the devil could scratch. John Piper has an interesting statement. John Piper is a popular theologian from Minnesota. He says something to this effect. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. And God has a way. You remember I said earlier the devil is a plagiarist and a pervert? He has no creativity, I said. All he can do is take some legitimate thing God has created and try to get us to fill it in an illegitimate way. So he comes to you and says, hey, don't you have sexual desire? The true answer is yes. God gave you that, by the way. It's not bad. It's a good thing. But the devil comes and says, uh, he, here's a way you can really get satisfaction. And what we need to be able to say is, no. God has given me amazing spouse. I am fully satisfied and as one crusty and crude old country preacher said, if you got steak at home, you don't need baloney somewhere else. Sorry about that. Just quoting him, all right? I'm fully satisfied. You've got no itch the devil can scratch. The devil comes and says, hey, boy, don't you want to be rich? There's nothing wrong with money, nothing at all. But you need to be able to say, you know what, God is meeting all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And while anything God blesses me with, I'm going to leverage for his glory and his purposes. You know, honestly, I'm not all that driven by money because God has shown me how I can be free from the love of money, being really content with what I have, whatever the situation. You've got no itch. The devil can scratch power. Power. You want to be powerful and lord it over people. No, Jesus said the greatest of all is really the one who's the servant. God knows the score. I don't need to have power that I can leverage over people. But revenge, that's what you really need. Those people who've hurt you, you want to get them back even worse. Yeah, God's shown me how I can do that. He's shown me I can kill them with kindness He's shown me not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but to give a blessing instead to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks very much, devil. But I'm good to go. You got no itch the devil can scratch. I'll tell you how you can be victorious. Have a healthy Christian life. The best deterrent against treacherous temptation is just to walk with God every day just to have a healthy christian life that's the most important thing and Jesus walked with the father in intimacy one final thing as we close and that is the principle of supplication in Luke 3 it says Jesus was praying when the holy spirit descended and we make a huge mistake, when, friend, when we saunter out to meet the world, the flesh, and the devil without having prayed. So let me ask you, here's my question here. The last question was, are you satisfied in your relationship with God? Are you spiritually satisfied? And this question, finally, is this. Are you given to prayer? Are you given To prayer? Does that mark your life day by day? So let me ask you, since the goal of Grace Fellowship is that every true follower of Jesus would become a fully Christ-centered person, let me ask you, what's keeping you back from that if if you're struggling to be Christ-centered? And if it's temptation, if it's the devil coming against you, listen, God has shown us in His Word how we can be victors and not victims. How we can overcome and not be overcome. Jesus is our example. Let's be more uh, like Jesus. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. This amazing passage of Scripture where we can learn from Jesus Himself. Thank you for all these principles. Thank you for how you apply them to our lives. I pray that every, every one of us who calls Jesus our Lord would be just dynamite, filled with the Spirit daily, walking in your love and armed with your truth. That is our prayer, O God, and we commit ourselves anew to that purpose in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.